Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Lydia Kiesling's debut novel, The Golden State, has received terrific, wonderful, wonderful praise. Let's say wonderful praise. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Hunovan has called it a marvelous and captivating literary debut, beautifully, intricately written, true to life and to women's experience in particular, full of insight and humor. Elisa Albert has written that The Golden State is as funny and alive a story as they come. And Eden Lepucky, who is here with us tonight, has written that The Golden State is a profound book and a rare and important novel. With us tonight to discuss uh, The Golden State is Eden Lepucky, author of the highly acclaimed novel, (laughs) California, and most recently, Woman Number 17, which has been called a provocative and timely meditation on art, authenticity, and representation in a digital age. She is also the creator of the Instagram Mothers Before and co-host of the podcast Mom Rage. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Lydia Kiesling and Eden Lepucky. Hi. Can everyone hear me? Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, Skylight. Thank you, Kabe, uh, for that really nice introduction. Uh, thanks to Eden for being here. and Thanks for having me. <laughs> being a good friend and a great author and for blurbing my book so nicely. Um, I feel like I know, I'd say, 75% of the people in the audience, which is really great. Um, thank you you know, people I know and people I don't know. It's really nice to see you all here. Uh, I'm going to read from sort of I guess it's kind of past the middle of the book. You don't need to know much um, other than that the first person narrator uh, is a woman named Daphne. She's having a little bit of a breakdown. Uh, She has a 16-month-old daughter named Honey, and she's been looking after her uh, by herself more or less for the last eight months. Uh, Her husband, Angin, is Turkish, and he's had a green card fuck up uh, that has, and he's in Turkey and they're trying to solve that. And she uh, has gone to very far northeastern California uh, to a home that once belonged to her grandparents and she is kind of drinking a lot and trying to parent her kid and just deal with her life. Um, And she's recently met a 92 year old woman named Alice who will appear in this scene briefly and um, they're just sort of getting to know each other. I think that's all you need to know. Uh, So I'll read for, I think it's like eight minutes, and then Eden and I will talk, and then we can do questions. I know that I have to be careful vis-a-vis my water intake. This is always awkward, figuring out how to do this. I'm going to just, here we go. Okay. I know that I have to be careful vis-a-vis my water intake relative to my screwdriver intake, and I go inside and have two glasses of the airless mineral-tasting water that comes out of the tap. I get the diamond ice cream out of the freezer and the Hershey's out of the cupboard, and I fix a huge bowl, making dense scribbles of syrup across the ice cream's uncanny yellow. I carry it back outside and eat it while watching the videos of Honey from daycare on my WeChat app. 
I have videos on this app from her first weeks at daycare after Angin left for his course when she was eight months old and at the peak of babiness, and they are precious, 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 but I cannot figure out how to get them out of the phone and onto the computer where I might feel more assured that they will last, and I spend a lot of time worrying about this. In the first one, she's wearing a onesie I bought her at the consignment store that is covered with tiny planes, trains, and automobiles. You are going to be a baby who goes places, I told her when we put it put her in it for the first day, although her dad is the one who was going places, and so far she has mostly stayed right where she was born. In the videos, Honey is wearing the onesie and sitting on a play rug next to another baby of about the same size. Baby Bianca, I say aloud, as that is the baby's name. And now, like Honey, she is a rangy, almost toddler, with a little ponytail of black hair sticking up in a plume from her head. She speaks Chinese with her mom, and maybe one day with Honey, I hope. Honey has a beatific smile on her face. The video is a 14-second loop, and I play it over and over again while tears run down my face. By and by, the ice cream is finished, and I want to have a cigarette, but know from experience that the fatty dairy scum on the inside of my mouth will be inharmonious with the cigarette, and I think I can sluice it out with a final screwdriver to cap off the evening. I sashay inside and prepare this and come back outside and take a big swig and then see that the ashtray is brimming over. And this is upsetting to my sense of orderliness because truly there is nothing worse than an overflowing ashtray on the deck of a mobile home. And I set down my drink and pick up the ashtray and walk around the deck to the back of the house where the trash can lives. But somewhere along the three short steps off the deck, I pitch forward and land with the full weight of an adult body in motion on my eyebrow and right shoulder. My head bounces off the concrete path that leads to the carport, and I see black and hear rather than feel some concussive force inside my head. It's the kind of fall where people would normally surround you and hasten to pick you up, look in your face, dust you off, hold up fingers, and ask if there's someone to call. But there's no one to call, only a riot of stars that I see across my vision against the riot of real stars in the sky above me when I roll over onto my side and then my back, gripping my brow and wondering if there's blood. I lie there for a minute, then roll back onto my side, and then onto my front, and I put one knee up and one hand, and then the other knee and other hand, and I stand very slowly with one hand over my throbbing eye. There's a lot of pain, and I stand there feeling it, and I feel my wits shaking themselves off and swimming against the current of alcohol in my blood, and after a minute or two, they slowly congregate and say, well, here we all are, and what are the signs of concussion, and shouldn't we stay awake in case we should never wake up again, and then I feel reassured, and then I feel afraid. I slowly get up and take another moment to steady myself, and on wobbling feet make my way up the stairs and back into the house and turn on the light in the other bathroom and inspect myself, a very white face and red wheel around my eyebrow. But all in all, the lack of evidence of what has happened is surprising given the clamoring inside my head. I go back outside to the corner of the deck where I can get Cindy's Wi-Fi and Google what to do in a concussion, and apparently it is wait two hours before you go to sleep, which is two hours I can spend reading about the percent of people who develop brain bleeding and blood clots and never wake up. What's her name who was married to Liam Neeson fell down from a standing position and a few hours later she was gone? I consider what will happen in this contingency and it would be Honey trapped in her pack and place screaming and screaming into an empty room and I put my head in my hands. The problem is that if this happens, no one will know for a very long time, because Angin will give me a couple of days before freaking out, and Uncle Rodney won't think anything of it if I continue to not call, and Meredith has no idea about geography, and I'm not in very good touch with my small assortment of friends from high school, college, grad school scattered across the earth. Cindy and Ed are out carousing. 
I could leave a note for Cindy, but what if she doesn't come home and spends the night howling at the moon with Ed? I could call the police, but I don't want to put it in anyone's mind that I'm an unfit mother, a drunk, etc. There's a dinky little medical center here, thanks to a parcel tax of $200 a year that all the live free or die types were persuaded to vote for because otherwise there would be no hospital for 300 miles. But you can't deliver a baby there or have anything but the most rudimentary of surgeries and it's closed now anyway. Suddenly something emerges from the depths of my throbbing head and I consider Alice, Alice the crone. I look at the time on my phone and it is 10.30, which is egregious, but hopefully not unforgivable. I remember she is staying at the passable, is all you can say about it, Arrowhead Motel, and I take the chance that I can use Cindy's Wi-Fi to make at least a voice call. This kind of seems tedious, but like whether or not you have soul service is a big issue in the book and in large parts of Northeastern California. <clears throat> I look up the number of the Arrowhead and copy it and then paste it into the Skype keypad, my right eye closed and my hand over my eyebrow, which I feel forming a knot. I hear the click as Skype kicks into gear and the sound of a phone ringing. Arrowhead, someone says curtly. I'm trying to reach one of your guests. Her name is Alice, uh, an older lady? Really old. I know it's late. I don't know her room number. If you could just put me through, it's a little bit of an emergency. One sec, the man says, and I hear another ring and another and another, and I think, of course she's asleep and not going to answer a ringing motel phone, but then I hear a click and clattering and a croaking hello. Miss Alice, I say, and start rushing so I can get to the end of this mortification. I'm so very sorry to bother you. I'm Daphne from the restaurant tonight with the baby, honey. I wait two beats for her to say, oh, hello, and rush ahead. I'm so, so embarrassed to say this, but I've had a fall and hit my head, and I'm concerned about the possibility of concussion, and so I'm sure everything's fine. I'm wondering if you could maybe check on me in the morning, since they say you shouldn't sleep with a concussion. I mean, that's what I've read. There's a pause. Don't you think you ought to call 911? Well, I considered it, I say, but I actually feel okay and think I'm probably fine. This is just more of a contingency plan in case the worst should happen. I like to have all my bases covered, and I don't want to upset the baby with an ambulance, which would have to come all the way from the next county over, probably. A longer pause. Okay, she says. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, I say. I'm at 3 Paiute Way in Deacons Park, the one with a Buick and a big birch tree out front. Hold on, she says, and makes me repeat it, which I think is a good sign. What time do you want me to come? What time do you usually wake up? About six. Well, I think if you were to come at seven, that would be good. I'll leave the door unlocked so you can get in. Okay, then. I'll um, leave you some instructions on the very off chance that something bad happens. Okay? I really can't thank you enough for this, Alice. Okay. Take care of yourself, she says, and hangs up. I wonder whether she will really come. My head swims a little and I light a cigarette, which I remember now was the precipitating factor, and now the ashtray is out in the yard somewhere with the cigarette butts strewn everywhere, but I don't dare brave the steps again to find it. I take a long drag to anchor myself to the bench and my head throbs. I will need to write the number for Uncle Rodney, as he can take honey if I die, until Angan can get her, but how he will get her is another question. I have to assume, hope, pray that there will be some way the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services can find their humanity if honey is left motherless and her father needs to come and get her, even without his papers in order, but I'm sure they won't. I Google, mother dead, father no green card, and after some grinding on the part of my phone, an answer appears in the form of an applicant whose sponsoring sister died, and evidently something exists called humanitarian reasons, but it all hinges as usual on the submission of new and different forms, and I think, how the fuck will he ever be able to get through on the telephone to a person to say, my fucking baby is there in California, 
and I just have to hope he has the good sense to go to the U.S. consulate in Istanbul and throw himself on their mercy. And I think I need to make this list as simple as possible. I need a process chart, a job tree, an org chart like I make at the Institute. So first Alice calls Uncle Rodney, and then he'll need to come up from Quincy and get Honey, and I guess he should be the one to call Angin, and then Angin will need to call the lawyer and the consulate about what to do to get Honey. And I realize I don't have a will and wonder if I should make one. And briefly, hysterically, I think that Angin's only conduit to his child will now be a forest ranger in Plumas County who calls him Engine, like Fire Engine, even though it's Angin, more like Angler. And I don't bother to correct Uncle Rodney anymore because it's like he just cannot do it no matter how many times he hears you say it. I consider that if I really thought any of this was going to happen, I would be crying. But then I think no one ever really expects these things. You physically can't anticipate them. So how I feel has no bearing on what will actually happen. And I need to just make sure everything is organized and at least I have some life insurance through the university. I pour some of my melting ice on the cigarette and hear it hiss and put the butt on the windowsill. And I go inside to find the small notebook I use to scribble Hugo's various instructions in during our conclaves. I tear out several sheets and I consult the contacts list on my phone and I number one sheet one and write, in case of emergency, please call my uncle Rodney Burdock at XYZ. He should call my husband, Angin Memetolu at XYZ and our attorney at XYZ. I laboriously write out the link to the site explaining what to do about humanitarian reasons for the green card and I put all the pieces of paper in the middle of the dining room table and I unlock the front door and go outside and finish the screwdriver and smoke what I consider might be the last cigarette of my life so I try to make it count. Thank you. That was so good. Oh, God, it's loud. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I'm going to throw you a softball, Lydia. Great. What was the seed of this novel? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, thank you, Eden, for that. Uh, well, I think the seed was probably... I started writing little like vignettes of it when my older daughter was uh, six months old and I had gone back to work uh, and like many first novels there's a lot of thinly veiled autobiography in this although not what you, <laughs> not, not what you just read um, so I worked at a place that was very similar to where uh, Daphne works I worked at UC Berkeley and which is a great job to have, but it's just hard to go back to work anywhere, I think, when you have a baby, even when you are lucky and have a you know great, cushy job. It just sucks to work and have a small child at home, I think. Uh, and so I was thinking about that a lot, and I was thinking about the sort of warring urges I had. I, one was that I really wanted to be with the baby and felt kind of desperate about having to leave her, but also knowing that if I was with her, I would want to end my life <laughs> um, so uh, that sort of uh, tension was very was fascinating if I could you know when I could step outside and see it and so I thought about a person who had that chance to be with a small child uh, all the time and what would happen um, a lot of the reviews talk about the kind of motherhood focus in the book um, and it's one of my favorite parts it's not it's one of many things that I love about this book um, but I wanted to hear a little bit about your decision to write I mean that was the kind of personal urge and then there's kind of like an aesthetic quality to it's like a it's almost like a, you gave yourself like a writerly challenge to write about motherhood like really write about it like these are the things I have to put in the diaper bag to get my kid 
out of the house and like now I really wanted to take a nap and now she's like crying out and this is a description of my child like I'm speaking as Daphne um <laughs> rising from a nap that's just gone on too long and so I'm just curious about how you kind of harnessed all of those details and why you wanted to do that well I think um I mean it's not it's not a secret that uh a lot of women um find that sort of their professional trajectory is, let's say, you know, it's not always like curtailed, but there's a, a certain obstacles can appear when they decide to have children, if they decide to have children. Um, but there's still, I don't know, there's a moment in the book where uh, Daphne describes like a very specific store of knowledge she has developed about her own child and how it's irrelevant to everything else in life and is going to disappear as soon as Honey is not that age anymore, and as soon as uh, Daphne isn't, you know, she, she's not at that like kind of developmental stage. And so I guess thinking about, you know, there are a lot of women who um, are, you know, just staying home with kids, not working, but they have, you know, you have this like insane level of knowledge and specificity about about the kids that you're. I don't know. I'm <laughs> I'm not describing this very no, well. No. But like so there anyone who has a kid is like is an expert in some way. Even if they're even if they're doing a bad job, it's still <laughs> you're kind of like an expert in your own life. Um but that's just like secret knowledge that just dies kind of with that moment in yeah. time and um with the age of that child. And so I thought about that a lot and just kind of like trying to show what 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 what's happening when you are parenting um and sort of those like invisible epic struggles that people are going through every day that just look like you know getting wipes out of a bag (laughs) (laughs) i don't know um is that partially why you wrote the book in first person present tense yes because i don't think um if you're just talking about I mean, it's like when anyone is narrating to you sort of something that was frustrating, they have to be a really good storyteller for it to actually be, to, for them to convey, or you have to be like a very empathetic listener. Like, I just think about when people, you know, if someone has like a bad time at the DMV, like it, it just sucks so much, but like explaining why it sucked is is really like people are like, yes, I just generally know the universe of shittiness that you endured, but your story is actually very boring. And that's that's <laughs> a lot, like if you were like, this is, it was so, you know, getting my child from point A to point B was so frustrating because like the shoes wouldn't be put on. Like that's just very hard to convey. Um, But I felt like if you had a very sort of voice driven and someone who was kind of as a narrator, like desperate to make themselves compelling, uh, then you would have more reason to kind of feel some of those feelings. I mean, of course that's like predicated on someone finding Daphne compelling and some people don't. And they're like, this book sucks. (laughs) No, but that, you know, not every, every, every book can't be for everyone. So, but if you, if you, if Daphne is like, oh, this, like this voice, like I hear this voice, then I think you can sort of tolerate some of the like diaper struggles uh, in that voice. Um, some, I, a friend of mine who couldn't come to the event, she wanted me to ask you this, and it sort of tail ends to this. Um, Darcy wanted me to ask this. Um, her mom. <laughs> um, she wanted to know about how you um, created tension in the novel. Because mm-hmm. um, I feel like what's really neat about this novel is the first person present can be tough in terms of creating a sense of like 
accumulation of meaning because it's all like in the moment, but that's kind of what it's like to parent a child. You're just like living moment by moment, getting everything done. Um, so, but at the same time, the book is super readable. So I'm curious how you pulled that thread of tension considering you were like having this character with a baby so much and you were in the first person. Um, well, I think, you know, the, you have to create like stakes of some kind. I mean, obviously if you're looking after a, a baby, like the stakes are always like the baby could die, but that's, you know, the, you, you can't, or you could die of a concussion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can't like totally build a book. I mean, I'm sure a more skilled writer could do that, but I, I felt like there had to be sort of other things. So, um, that's when the other kind of things that are interesting to me and that I wanted to explore came in. So one, the fact that, um, the father of the baby is absent and absent for a very specific reason. So, you know, if he had like, I had thought about, it was important to me that the mother be alone with the child more or less, but you know, if the dad is dead like that, you know, then it's like a grief book. And if there's an acrimonious divorce or if he's like a deadbeat, then that is, you know, there's anger of a different kind. But, um, I, a, know people who went through a similar kind of immigration situation and our immigration system even before the like very obvious shittiness and violence that is like kind of in the news now like has been horrible and been just like endlessly frustrating for even like very privileged people trying to trying to navigate it um so that I was kind of interested in having that in there and then it also kind of solved a problem because it makes it's such you it's so hard to find something specific to be mad at when that's the reason that the dad is not there. Um, and so she really, you know, sometimes she just like is mad at Angin like for not being there, but it's not his fault at all. Um, and so that was one way to kind of create, I guess, tension. And then there are sort of issues of Northeastern California and, and maybe this doesn't answer the question, but no, it does. That's I think it's I... interesting. I think it, the thing about Angin is also interesting because that there, everything becomes she's in this like hyper liminal space. Like she's caring for a child who in the next week will be a different child, basically just from the sake of development. And she's still with her husband, but she's not with her husband because he can't get there. And it's like a matter of like a, the wrong button was pushed on the keyboard in the immigration office or was it, we don't know. Um, and she's in her ancestral mobile home, like doing what? So that all kind of feeds thematically really nicely, I think. I also think that the fact that you made it 10 days, is it 10 days? Mm -hmm. That I think is like super somehow like revs you up to you're like, we're in this like specific point in time. Like what is going to happen? <laughs> um, but let's talk about the state of Jefferson. Is that mm -hmm. right? Um, do you want to talk a little, just explain it a little bit more for people who might not have read the book yet? Sure. Um, because this is a real thing. Funnily, yes. Someone uh, read the book who is from California, and she was like, isn't it cool how Lydia just made up this thing? And <laughs> my brother friend, who is from Lebanon, was like, no, that's real. And she's like, no, it's definitely not real. <laughs> but it is real. Um, people need to read the newspaper. Uh, so the state of Jefferson is a very long-standing effort. Uh, you know, it's gone through sort of waves of interest, but to make a 51st state out of parts of uh, Northern California, and in some cases, Southern Oregon. And the general kind of idea is that uh, in this state, there, were, there would be a return to some of the extractive industries that had flourished uh, in, the, in parts of rural California and Oregon, like logging, um, kind of different land use for cattle grazing, um, some mining, and like there's an idea in rural California that places like 
Los Angeles and San Francisco kind of control like water and make decisions about resources and the people in rural California are like disenfranchised as a consequence. Um, and so it, it really sort of revved up in the last like few years. I mean, it was going on as far, like in 19, uh, right before Pearl Harbor, uh, there was a, a uh, group that decided to secede every Thursday until further notice was, I think, the, it was either Tuesday or Thursday, and they would stop people at the Siskiyou County line and hand a proclamation for the state of Jefferson. Um, you know, that was obviously, like, pretty symbolic, but um, just to show that it's been happening, this has been an idea for a while. Um, I think the issue with it is that it's, be by virtue of the fact that it's in the uh, more rural counties that are you know, have low populations, it's hard to get sort of critical mass to like really make something like this happen. But a few, in like 2014, 2015, there was like, there were a lot of uh, counties in Northern California that at least got their boards of supervisors to to vote in the affirmative to consider it as an idea, which was like kind of the first step. And uh, that's also largely symbolic, but it, to me it just showed that there was, it was kind of like gaining some traction, I guess, in uh, in parts of the state. Um, and why, I mean, I know your mother is from this area, right? So you have some personal and connection to the Who's region. Here? <laughs> um, hello, aunt. <laughs> um, so what was drawing you towards this plot line? Um, so my mom and her sister uh, grew up in a town called Alturas in Modoc County in northeastern California. And my grandparents lived there when I was growing up. And so I'd visit every year. And I just loved it so much. And it has a very, you know, it's like very kind of mythologized in my mind. And even when I was a kid, I apparently told people that when I got married, I wanted to have my honeymoon in Alturas. Um, <laughs> And <laughs> did you do that? <laughs> no, I have brought my husband there. He doesn't like feel quite the same way about it. But uh, I, I don't know. It just it's a place that means a lot to me. But you know, my grandparents have been gone for a number of years now, and I've been up subsequently. But um, you know, so it just it feels sad because they're not there. But it also like you know, the economy is not great in that part of the state. Like, it, that is the second poorest county in the state. Um, and there's been a lot of, like, loss of population. And, you know, stores are not there anymore. And um, so I can kind of understand, like, a, I feel my own sort of feeling of nostalgia um, and sadness about it, Make even though... California great again kind of deal? <laughs> I mean, that's the problem. I mean, the state of Jefferson, it is, like, it's almost a complete... The Venn diagram is just, like, two circles with... Um, state of Jefferson and like Trump support. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where, even though I can, I'm kind of, you know, can sympathize with some of the like feelings like people who live in cities don't understand like the way of life in rural counties, which that is just demonstrably true. Uh, but it's like you lose me if then you, I just don't like Donald Trump. So anyway, um, yeah, so that it just, and my grandparents never were like, we want a 51st state. So when I started, you know, I didn't learn about State of Jefferson until after they had already died. And so then I was like, it, it just put a new, I started to see that part of California in sort of different ways and mm -hmm. kind of thought about it in, a, you know, more in the context of American politics more broadly. I think you also <laughs> have a really interesting perspective because you spent a lot of your youth away not like you lived in Armenia briefly, your dad was in the State Department, mm -hmm. is that right? And so, and then you've come back. So I'm just curious if that has informed how you see um, America, but specifically maybe California. I mean, you live in San Francisco now, you're visiting LA. I was with her on Friday, I was like, you look, you're acting like you're from Michigan. Cause she was like, oh, look at that. 
It's very different in LA. <laughs> I really like it though. Every time I come, I like it more. Um, we'll get you here soon enough. <laughs> I'm not a good driver though. Uh, I well, I think um, I think because of my, my dad was in the foreign service, so we did a lot of moving around, uh, and I think it made me very interested in ideas of kind of like belonging and like authenticity in a way, and um, and even if I hadn't grown up like that, it's a it's very a thing in San Francisco now, and I'm I have a sense probably in L.A. too, um, because of things like gentrification, displacement, cost of living, like lack of housing. People are, there's a lot of like pride that people will have when they're like, I'm a native San Franciscan. And they always use the word native, which is very problematic in um, some clear ways. But there's a, you know, sense like, you know, certain people belong because they're, you know, if your parents lived there, that's like, you should be there. Um, and I, that's a very attractive idea to me because I don't really have it. Um, and it's like, well, in Alturas, like I actually do have, you know, several generations of family who've lived there, but like, I don't want to live there. <laughs> um, but it's still, so sort of that's like the idea of like roots are sort of interesting and attractive yeah. to me. And there are a lot of kind of problems with that impulse, um, especially, I mean, Modoc County is named after um, the, people who used to live there and there were the famously the Modoc Wars uh, where um, which there are many books about that that you can read uh, so yeah I'm just all the kind of ideas about like home um, or things that I was kind of thinking about in the book I have one last question and then maybe we'll open it up and then if they're shy I can have more questions so sorry <laughs> um, I'm curious about your paragraphs, um, you have the, and you're used to the word and, I don't know if you guys, if you read it, and then I was reading along as you were reading aloud, but you have these long paragraphs, and you use the word and a lot as a sort of like engine of the paragraph, and I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about that, or if you don't want to answer that, are there any influences prose-wise that you were thinking about as you worked on this book? Um, I'm happy to answer that. Uh, so it's funny when I read when I read over a lot of the book, I like the sentences are hideous to me. Like I, I it's not, I my background is not in fiction writing. I wrote you know book reviews and like personal essays, and um, that is not like my style. Um, previously, I did write. It is in, quite different from your. I wouldn't. There, it's not hideous at all. But it's. Um, but it is really different from your nonfiction. Yeah, but and this I, is the first person that you were really working in, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I and. Honestly, I think if you had described my book to me four years ago, I would have been like, that sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> like, no commas. Like, please, that's yeah. disgusting. Because um, I disgusting. really like commas, and I like punctuation. And I am very fastidious um, about my nonfiction writing in a way that I I just really threw away to write this. Um, but Why? I, Why did you throw it away? Because I... it's so interesting. Because it can't, like, you... I mean, I... To, to propel the story forward, I think you need it to be sort of like messy and mm. and not totally stream of consciousness, but sort of approximating stream of consciousness. Uh, so there's some kind of ands that I tack on that are very not melodious, like if you're thinking about just sort of from a craft perspective, mm -hmm. but they seem to do work in terms of like motion and kind of yeah. the passage of time. So I guess that's sort that's of what I was... I also wanted to give just a shout out. I think this is the only book that I have read that has someone 
just like we finish our meal, my fingers already swelling from salt, and I stand and pluck my pants from my butt. <laughs> that's, that's, I will accept my Pulitzer Prize. Uh, <laughs> I was like, for that line thank later. God, this is, I mean, I don't want to make them too much of like, in L, if you grew up in LA, you might call it a Murphy. Does anyone know that word? All right. It's called a wedgie in the rest of the world. But like, finally, someone's writing about the Murphy. I got the girl in the back to laugh. So I'm very proud of you. Well, it's necessary. I just really felt it was important. <laughs> On that note, are there any questions from the audience? No question is too dumb. <laughs> That's a great question, and I um, thought about that every day that I was writing the book because I would think about myself, and it's like none of these things would happen to me because I have um, family around who I love dearly, uh, and I also, you know, my children's father lives with me and assists with their parenting. Um, and I have friends like Eden and from college and high school. So it just, I, that was one thing where I was like, why would you just have no friends? Uh, but I, if, if she had friends, then nothing in the book would work. So I kind of, I would like mention friends and be like, but they live far away. All the, like the friends are far away. And at one point I was like, this just isn't realistic. Like she, because she does have Uncle Rodney who's mentioned in the book. So I actually had a phone call um, in the first or second draft. There was no Uncle Rodney in the first draft. And then I introduced Uncle Rodney and like she talks to him on the phone. And my editor was like, no, uh, she's, she's too much of a lone wolf and it just like, it works so much better that she is kind of in this like panicked, isolated place and that's why she can form this weird friendship with Alice. So I, I, I'm not sure she, to the, in some ways she's very similar to me but in that way she's very different and I don't totally understand how she is like that but I'm just like, well, some people are like that so she's just gonna be like that and, and then that kind of helped that, that was just sort of like a condition I had to set in order to do the things I wanted to do in the book. Um, could you talk a little bit about the writing process for this? Because it does feel so immediate. I'm wondering how the first draft came out or what your schedule was like. Oh my God, this is amazing. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so I um, initially, I just had little like vignettes that I wrote and I was working full time and was like, wasn't sure what I was doing exactly, but thought like maybe I wanted to try and write a book. And um, so I wrote these like work, they were about breast pumping, um, which is like a uniquely horrible thing that um, women are exposed to. Um, and I wrote those and they were in the first person and I was, and actually Eden um, read them and we were in a writing group at the time and together and they were kind of like, what is this? And I was just like, I'm not sure. Um, then it became clear that I, I was going to, I wasn't going to be able to do what I did with my other kinds of writing, which is like come home from work and sit down on the couch and like do it. Uh, and after a lot of kind of negotiation with my husband, we, and I found a part-time job um, that I could do from home that would like almost cover daycare. We agreed that I could have a year where I 
didn't work at my full-time job and I just did the part-time job and like wrote the book and at the end of the year like something would have to happen because we would run out of money um and so then I made a spreadsheet and I um wrote every day you know my starting words my ending words like the total words and if I didn't write um which was most of the days actually when I look back at the spreadsheet I wrote the reason and you know often it was like my paid work had to take priority or like had a freelance thing that I needed to do or it was like a household errand which is also very interesting to see when those and then sometimes it was just like I couldn't I had like a code when I was just like some days you want to write and it's just I couldn't and I would call that dirt bag in the spreadsheet because <laughs> um, like I started to write but just would be like oh now I just looked at Twitter for 1.5 hours and didn't do it um and so that's what I did. And um, I think once once I figured out what the voice was, those parts were the kind of like propulsive, no punctuation, like baby stuff parts were pretty easy to write. What was hard was the like standing up and like picking the wedgie. Just like making <laughs> making time pass was so awful. Um, so I did that last. I'd be like, okay, well now like you have to like open the door and go inside. <laughs> I would I would write those parts with my eyes closed because I was like, this is, just feels terrible. But I guess, does that answer your yeah, question? Yeah. The, it's also amazing because we were in this writing group and it was like, I was like, Lydia, you're not really a fiction writer, but maybe you want to be in this. And she was like, I don't know. And then a year later, she's like, I finished a book and I sold it. And we were like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it was kind of amazing because who, a lot of people like decide to quit their job and write a book, but then you just like, then a year later, like, well, I'm going to go be a paralegal now. Well, I'm, I'm going to do that still. <laughs> Because um, I need money. Um, but I would also like to write another book. Yeah, we want to read it. But I do need money. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Hey, um, I, I love the book so much. Oh, thank you. Um, I was interested in, uh, and it's actually a pretty boring question, that seems like when you might even ask a bar show, um, but this place felt so real to Modoc County and to Altura. Because I was curious what you that's a that's a great question um so yes uh the it's it's like it's so close that it's just so stupid and embarrassing like how like I just changed it in like the most slight ways and even the names that I gave it it's like very clear it's like changing someone named Tim's name to like Tom um <laughs> Tim is my husband's name, but uh, uh, so initially, I think I did that because I felt too much anxiety about um, writing about altars and like misrepresenting it and being because I mean, you know, there is a sense of kind of I didn't want it to make it too like decline paradigm like you know this is a thing in the New York Times about like coal country and like everyone at the pillow factory got fired and <laughs> I was like I just didn't want to do that um and so I felt like giving it a different name sort of gave me permission to not have to like make everything exactly how it was and so that was thing one just kind of cowardice uh but then as I was writing because I use, there's a board of supervisors meeting in the book, um, which is taken from notes from a real board of supervisors meeting, but it's not in Modoc County, it's in Siskiyou County. So then it was like that, if to do the political stuff, like I kind of had to do like a mishmash of uh, North State counties. So then I was like, well, this makes sense, like, because this lets me play around with um, things that are actually like a matter of record. Um, and then the final thing is I was reading... 
I did no research before I wrote the book. I like wrote the book and then I was like, I guess I should have information about like things. So I got all these books about California and I, I found um, there aren't actually that many like books about um, that part of Northeastern California, but I read someone's dissertation that is housed at UC Berkeley and it was written in like the 50s. And it has a long sort of description of that part of the state and how many name changes it went through. So basically it was like on the way to you know, gold country and like human settlements, um, <laughs> uh, the white human settlements, uh, and but people would get lost and they would sort of end up there. And some people decided that that's where they wanted to stay. Uh, but they were very fractious with like, they didn't like the various state governments that existed. They sort of would, um, if they needed help when they were having like, uh, when they were trying to kill like the native populations who already lived there, they would get like the army and, but then when it came time to like pay taxes to a particular, a particular entity, a lot of people were like, no, we don't want to be part of this entity, which sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> and so it actually went through a bunch of different names. And so then I was like, okay, well there's like a historical precedent to this being kind of like a, having a different name. Yes, last question. <laughs> you know, didn't fit then and there. And it was just it's a similar voice that comes through with this will. It was mm. wonderful and charming. But do you, how do you see yourself writing from now on? Well, I mean, I think I do like um, that type of sort of like narrative nonfiction writing um, and and enjoy doing it, but it's, I mean, the economics are just so terrible. And there was a time, you know, when I was like in my twenties and um, starting to write, like it didn't matter that much that I wasn't getting paid or was like making very little money. Um, but now like I have kids and like I need to pay for daycare and you know, uh, life is expensive. So it just sort of, and it's hard to find like a venue for those kinds of pieces. But I think, you know, beyond that, I, what I loved about writing the book is that there are all these things that I kind of think about all the time that if you tried to pitch them to any kind of, it's like you write like, dear New York Times Magazine, like I have these feelings about <laughs> my, my mom's hometown. Like you can't do that. I mean, some people can, but I'm just, I don't, I'm not sort of savvy enough to do that. And, and then also just like the structure of a novel allows you to take a theme and just do all kinds of interesting things with it. And I don't know, there's a lot of like liberty there that I, I mean, I say this when I, I'm actually sitting down to write and I'm like, this is a horrible prison that I've made for myself. Uh, but theoretically, um, I think there's a lot of kind of freedom you have in the novel that I would like to kind of explore further. Amen. Well, we'll be back here for that reading in 15 to 20 years. <laughs> Uh, now you can buy Lydia's book at the front, and then she'll sign it for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.